Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning and welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm interviewing Susan Hawthorne about her new book, The Sacking of the Muses. Welcome, Susan. Hello. Thank you. I'm I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah, well, it's a great opportunity to speak to you. Um, Now, we're doing this by phone because you are living in far north Queensland. Yep, that's correct. And um, has has the weather been up there? It's very dry. Uh, all of the rain in Queensland has happened down south. Now, the sacking of the muses is the tenth collection of your poetry, and it includes your translations from uh, Sanskrit and Greek. So, tell me a bit about how you started translating Sanskrit and Greek. Well, I studied Greek a long time ago in the um, early 80s and um, I really I really loved doing it. And I then I travelled to Greece and I learnt more about Greek mythology and then I eventually started translating some of Sappho's poems, which is such a thrill. Uh, and then in 2007, I started studying Sanskrit and again became really enamoured of the uh, mythic traditions, the religious traditions and so forth. And in 2009, I got a residency at the University of Madras in Chennai. And there, like, just really took off after that. And I've been now been learning Sanskrit for 15 years, still feel like I know almost nothing. But um, I have learnt a lot through translating in classes and then going back and and when I'm struck by a story, I go on to play with that, to translate it and then sometimes interpret it and, and so forth. And the first section of Sacking of the Muses, which is called The Temple of the Dance, came out of two two performances that I saw. One was um, a Bhatyanatyam dance performance, which Mangai, a, a theatre director and performer, um, directed. And it was, I had only just met her and it was, uh, was fabulous. I really, really enjoyed it. And then she told that I should go and see a Nangya Kutu performance by Kapila Venu, which is a a Tamil-based performance. And the first poem in the series comes from that performance and the others came out of the Bhatyanatyam performances that I saw. So, yeah, it's a kind of ongoing process of of, coming across things, translating them, playing with them and so forth. Now, the first poem that we'll get to is Draupadi 1, and that is located in the Mahabharata, one of the two great Sanskrit epics of Indian literature. Tell us about the place of this story of Draupadi in the larger story of the Mahabharata. 
the Mahabharata is 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 a story about war, and the key figures that I'm looking at are the Pandava brothers. There are five of them, and it's interesting because Draupadi finishes up having to marry all five of them, which I think is a bit rich. Um, I mean, one husband is probably more than enough. The eldest of those brothers is called Yudhishthira, and he's a gambler. Uh, and there's also a secret sixth brother called Karna, uh, and basically the war is between the Pandavas and, and, and Karna, who's on the other side. So it's, it's quite, it's a big story. You know, there's no, I've read bits of the Mahabharata, but only bits. Only bits, and the the long poem here called "Temple of the Dance" actually covers a whole lot of really interesting contemporary stories. Um, the th- first story, Putana, is about childbirth, uh, and she gives birth to Krishna, who eventually kills her. There's other stories around single motherhood, uh, gambling and rape, adoption, exile, fraud, war, tomboys. And, and fate. So all of those things are encompassed within this series that I've been, the Temple of the Dance. Wonderful. Well, let's get to the first poem. We're going to read Draupadi 1. And you can see this how this has come out of the performance because the first line goes, even before Krishna is on stage, I'm worried, worrying about Draupadi. She's the linchpin of the story. Let me set it out. She marries an eligible young man, the famous archer, Arjuna. He does the impossible, shoots an arrow into the eye of a parrot. His equal, Karna, that unknown son of Kunti, is excluded from the contest. Draupadi calls him a Sutaputra, a mere charioteer's son. He cannot, he may not win the hand of a princess. Later, he shoots two arrows into two eyes of a parrot in a single shot. Fate opens Kunti's mouth when Arjuna brings home his one arrow shot one eye parrot prize. Share the prize with your brothers. She's said it many times before. When gods decree such things, there is no escape. Draupadi has five husbands, ten hands, one hundred fingers, takes on their interests and passions, becomes the most important person in the household after her mother-in-law. Then the gambling begins. It's Yudhishthira who gets them into this scrape. He has a problem, a gambling problem. He bets everything, his land, his people, his cattle, his houses, his brothers, himself and Draupadi. She's in her room, taking time out, bleeding time. She's fetched, hair dragged into the assembly, her sari torn, her body exposed to a room full of men. None of them move, none of them protest, none of the five brothers, not a one. Karna says, a ten-handed woman is nothing but dirt. Krishna, Krishna calls Draupadi. God, have a bigger view. 
he creates a deception so that Draupadi Sari never unwinds like the magic casket that never empties. Yes, that's a most dramatic uh, moment in the Mahabharata when Draupadi is taken into this room and then the sari, which is normally six metres of cloth, uh, wound around the body, is is unwound and unwound and unwound and unwound and it never stops unwinding. Yeah, it's a really really moving story for me. Um, I think it's, um, it's it's just so powerful. You know, and and it says a lot about the fate of so many women. Yes, well, they're treated as property, and uh, you know, with no control over their lives. Yes, and violated, and it goes on, and there are, there are other things that happen. She gets has to go out in exile, and ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, as you said, there's a there's an awful lot in that story. You know, gambling and. Uh, they're quite contemporary themes. Yes, yes, they are. And, you know, there's also stuff around adoption because one of the brothers is not known about because Kunti had had him before the old, the five, the next five brothers and had given him away. So, you know, there's stuff like that and there's fraud and, and then there's the war and so on. I mean, you know, all of these things happen all the time. Yes. And have happened so many times in history. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, these are the reasons why the Mahabharata keeps being read from age to age. Yes, yeah, and the same can be said for um, the Greek myths and the Roman myths and so forth. Yeah, I mean, uh, stories all around the world, they're so important. They are, they are ways of keeping the memory strong. I mean, Aboriginal societies also have very strong oral traditions that uh, maintain knowledge, um, knowledge that can pass down generation to generation. And there are some wonderful um, traditional stories coming out of uh, various Indigenous communities as well. Yeah. Now, the next poem that you'd like to read is from uh, the section in your book, Embrace, and it's called Schleser. Yeah. Schleser is... A really interesting poetic form. Uh, it's a way of saying two sentences, two different sentences whose meaning can be completely distinct but they look the same. And the reason why this is possible in Sanskrit is because of the syllabic language and so every consonant or double consonant has a vowel in between and it has compound words and if you cut the compound words in different places, you can have completely different meanings attributed to them. Uh, and I, I actually found it really interesting because as a lesbian, I write poetry um, trying to say things in slightly different ways. But I was also intrigued that the word schlesher means embrace. So here's the poem. A way of writing two meanings at once. A way of reading with flexibility. A train going in two directions simultaneously. Schleicher comes naturally to lesbians. Our codes read this way and that. Are you on the upper bunk going east or the lower bunk going west? 
like an M.C. Escher drawing. One hand draws the other. One hand makes love. The other answers. We embrace our double lives like actors and their alter ego. Some say Schleicher is unnatural. I've heard the same said about us. So a world that doesn't embrace ambiguity is a fairly flat sort of a world, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, double meaning. We have to do it differently in English because our language is not structured in the same sort of way as as Sanskrit and and other languages, which allow you to play these games. Yes, and it's a great uh, analogy for, uh, you know, your own perspective. Yeah, and... I, I did read up on it. There's a wonderful book called Extreme Poetry, uh, the South Asian movement of, of simultaneous narration by a fellow called Yigal Bronner. And if you want to know about Schleser, you will know everything about it if you read that book. It's wonderful. <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, well, that's something to look forward to. So let's move on in the book. That it's a it's a really thick book, and you know it it's really um, an extraordinary achievement. You've not only like translated from both Greek and Sanskrit, you've also then taken some of these translations and taken them in a new direction. You know, using a more interpretative approach to sort of amplify the meanings of things. Yeah. Well, that part of my poetic project, I would say. Um, I'm inspired by um, the stories. I want to tell them in a slightly slant way and open them out to other interpretations. Yes, it's um, a wonderful thing, the whole area of myth, because every myth has potential for so many kinds of readings and so many levels of meaning. Um, you've got a really interesting poem here called Brihashpati's Cows. What's that about? Um, it was inspired by a section of the Rig Veda, um, book four, number 50. Uh, and Brihashpati was a Vedic uh, god who was associated with the idea of Brahma in all of the different meanings that that has, and sometimes the Brahma priest of the gods. Um, And just to explain another word, the yoni is the Sanskrit word for womb, uterus, vulva, vagina. It can also mean source and origin and spring, as well as grain and a place of rest. And what Sanskritists say um, about words is that they have a wide semantic meaning, lots of different words. So they, they have multiple meanings, which is why it can be sometimes very hard to translate from Sanskrit into English. So for Hashbury's cows, cows are at the centre of some world. Take Brahaspati, who claims to be the firstborn of all the gods. He has a herd of shining speckled cows a well-dug well and stones are milked. Honey oozes from earth. Brahaspati is born from heaven's light, his seven faces beaming seven rays. With his bellow, he blows apart night. He keeps his herd of cows in a cave, drives them up to the air, 
bellowing all the while with the echo of a song of praise sung by the following throng. But the firstborn God has forgotten that darkness and caves come this light, that the source is the yoni that brings him to illumination. Yes, the firstborn God needed someone to give him birth. Exactly. <laughs> As do all people. Yes. All people have mothers. Exactly. Yes, it's um, but it's 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 a marvelous thing to reflect on these images, you know, of uh, these herds of cows, you know, being herded around and separating the night and the day, and but uh, they they have, they, I mean, on one level, it's a way of understanding the universe and and you know cosmology or something. But and I did write an entire book called Cow. Yes. So I have a bit of a thing about the meta metaphoric um, le- level um, of the word cow and of the character of cow. Yes, yes. Well, it, it, that's a big topic. So, um, but yeah, so where shall we go next? Um, perhaps we should go to the sacking muses. Sure. And the... This sequence was written in 2016, um, which was a year where I participated in a poem a day online. And although I had done this before in 2009, just privately, this this time it was public. And so each day you wrote a poem and then it had to go up online. Mm. So it was quite an extraordinary thing. But as a result, you know, I got a lot of poems Um, and... So the idea for the sacking of the muses came about because I was thinking about the muses who are the art. The, the, they, they represent um, different facets of the art, um, whether it's uh, epic poetry or song um, or um, history, tragedy, astronomy, all sorts. There are nine of them all together, lyric poetry, Music and it's an um, ancient Greek tradition. These muses, it is. Yep. yes, and it goes further than Greece as well. Yes, there are beautiful mosaics they found in Turkey, um, of pictures of, of the the uh, the muses, the nine muses. So I, I started it because there was a lot of, as you know, as we know, there was a lot of politics going on at that time, and so I tried. I, I have sort of. Um, Every second one is a contemporary setting and the other is a poem about one of the muses. And the title poem, number one, is The Sacking of the Muses. The muses have been sacked. Their role in the pantheon sold up for some new real estate venture. The muses have fled, all nine of them, in a mathematical and artistic frenzy. They are downcast. What's a to do to amuse herself in these penny-pinching days? How can a poet expect to have her work taken seriously when profit is deemed all? The muses are unemployed on the dole, living on the smell of an oily rag, their hearts raging. And, of course, I'm also commenting on the very poor level of funding 
uh, given to literature in Australia. Yes. Well, I mean, um, we have a market economy, not a muse economy. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Mm. Um, and I think it's, um, yeah, you know, it gets worse, worse and worse. Yes, and every time we think we've hit rock bottom, we haven't, you know, whether it's um, funding for the arts or refugee policy. I mean, they keep making things worse in the government. It's it's extraordinary, and the latest budget doesn't include any any increase in funding for the no, arts. No, there is nothing, um, absolutely nothing. And I mean, the whole artistic sector was left out of JobKeeper support during the pandemic, which was like such an intentional crime against yes. art, you know, and artists. And and you know, poets, if they are lucky might earn 4000 in a year. Mm. Now, you can't live on $4,000. No. They have to go out and do a whole lot of other things. Mm. But the possibility of those other things dried up in the last couple of years as well because face-to-face things disappeared, no events, <laughs> no teaching, um, etc. Yeah, so. no, it, it's just been um, extraordinary. But it, it's also a cultural problem that... You know, there's a value given to real estate, and I liked um, the way uh, the muses have been sacked, their role in the pantheon sold up for some new real estate venture. I mean, the value is always given to literal property, you know, it's not given to new ideas and new forms of expression. And, you know, it's just like culturally, there's, it's coming from such a really dead place. And I, I would quite like to read one about one of the other characters. So I think I'll read the one immediately following the the first one. Yep. And this is about Calliope, who's the muse of epic poetry. I'm drawn to Calliope, who can speak for days. Her verses flow without end. One night I sat by her as she sang her epic poem to stars. She says, they are not so long, not even a light year song. They are intricate, they're metre complex and rhythmic so you can dance. As she sang, it seemed that stars came closer. The trees huddled around us and the whispers of animals could be heard in the forest. Before I knew it, I could hear the rushing sound of a stream just out of reach. I listened and watched the night through. I woke to the sound of a trumpeting swan, the clatter of grasshopper wings. And so each of each of the nine muses has a poem to them. And then I, it was also a time about um, the occupying movement. Oh yes. And, and so I, I incorporate that in, in one of the poems as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a beautiful poem. You know, one night I sat by her as she sang her epic poems to the stars. Um, yes, you know, the muse of epic poetry. We don't even think about epic poetry very often these days. Oh, no, it does happen. <laughs> People do write epic poetry. Yes. But it takes a long time. There's such a range of material in the book. How did you work out how to put it all together? Um, well, I had a 
whole lot of poems sitting around that had never been published or, you know, one or two might have made it out into the public sphere, but most have. And um, I did particularly want to have The Temper of the Dance published and by the time I it was published, um, I knew more about what I had written back then, which is always useful because it gives you a bit more distance. And because I had also written the sacking of the muses sequence, that also had to be in. And then I went hunting for other poems that I had written on similar themes, so mostly mythic, something about you know Greece or India or or Latin stories, uh, and so it it came together after I after I did that, and I did write a couple of new poems for the book as well, including the one called Okay, so let's read that one. So Mnemosyne is the Greek goddess of memory. She's also the mother of all the muses. Uh, and the, the book finishes with this, this poem called The Festival of Memoria. The crowds are gathering for the Festival of Memoria. Here are the card sharps and memory champions who'd been dropouts before the crash, the old woman who held all the remedies in her mind, her knowledge of uncultivated plants, encyclopedic. She has created a collective of spinsters and invited the young healers to join. In the next, in the next tent are the gardeners, gatherers and cooks, portions of food and potions for the body, the old people's shine with their astronomical knowledge. They come from the deserts and rainforests, grasslands and shorelines. All night they sing and dance, the great sharing of knowledge, now an emergency. All the electronic libraries have gone. There are still books held on shelves, but no one can afford to read them. The libraries were sold by corrupt governments cash-strapped and myopic, like the rich in their castle when the plague came. Some starved for lack of farming know-how. They are locked in mausoleums of silence. The festival of memoria is the new life. It is also the old life regained. Here are the keepers of the kipu, the chanters of the bashitani, the knotters and singers, even the knitters and embroiderers of old memory patterns. Canvases are laid on the ground. Each takes a position and paints the world. On the periphery sit the human dictionaries, sharing words for food and fine conversation. Here are those who are multilingual, remembering new and old twists of tongues. Some are poets who can recite the histories. Others are players of tragic and comic forms. It is odd. These days all the arts have returned. From the woodwork have emerged the reviled ones who kept them alive without reward. We live within the story. We have our tools, our skin, feet, legs, hands, arms, bellies, larynx, nose, ears, brains. Our planet is in good hands. And that's such an optimistic ending. It is, but it also goes to show 
what happens. And of course, I did write this before COVID hit, so the plague right. has been amongst us. They are the things that I think about how we're going to get out of the mess that we're in. Uh, And there are some positive things happening in amongst the dispossessed communities mainly. The powerful will lose. Yeah. Well, um, you know, there's in Melbourne, we've always got gatherings of spoken word poets every week at different, different places, different times. So there's always poetry going on. Yeah, and poetry is really critical. Right? It's it's the oldest um, literary art form. Yes, it is, and and it has its own magnetism. You know, it's not dependent on being auspiced by others. It it you know there's a it it comes from passion and insight. And in fact, it doesn't even need paper. All it needs is somebody who's prepared to speak. Yes, exactly. So, well, thank you for coming on the Spoken Word program. It's been a great pleasure. It yeah. really has, so. Thank you. Um, so I've been talking to Susan Hawthorne about her new book, The Sacking of the Muses, which is published by Spinifex Press. And my name is Di Cousins, and this has been the Spoken Word program.